0: We are in 1 Kings this morning, chapter 21. We're bringing 1 Kings to a close. I mean, that's not really a thing because there's not really two books. But it feels good if you're a goal-oriented sort of person, which I am not. So I could take all year with Kings, and I'm good. It will not take all year. But we get to see <laughs> the death of Ahab this morning. Woohoo! At last! Jezebel comes later. She's a bit more of a problem than Ahab. Uh, she'll come in 2 Kings, but we'll get there forthwith. But first, it's Ahab, and we see uh, the, the pinnacle of Ahab's wickedness this morning and Jezebel's. So just to kind of remind you, because we haven't seen Jezebel for a few weeks, and she pops back into the story this morning, we have Ahab and his wickedness really comes from a kind of sniveling weakness. Uh, he's a shapeshifter. He, Whoever is in front of him putting pressure on him, he conforms to. Surprisingly quickly, when an enemy king comes, walking, you know, sends messengers into his court and says, uh, I want all you have, and all including your money, your wives, and your children. He says, all I have belongs to you, and he sort of bows down pretty quickly. This is the appointed king by God, given authority as a king by God himself. He just hands it over. And just whoever's in front of him, that's what he does. Then you have Jezebel, his pagan wife, Baal-worshipping, The priestess of Baal married illegally, as far as God is concerned. Her wickedness comes in the form of a kind of controlling manipulation, divisiveness, and a lust for power without responsibility. Those are the worst kind of people. People who want the influence and the power and the authority that comes from a position, but they don't want the position. I've had people say that to me. I had a guy one time, because it's the Jezebel thing is not always a woman. There's a lot of men. I had a guy literally come in my office one time, unannounced, walked in, I'm working, and he sits down and he starts checking his email. And my office is not big. You've been in my office, seen, I mean, it's, it's a small, you know, it's an awkward, like we're sitting like four feet from each other, and he just doesn't say anything, he's checking his email. For a long time, I'm kind of like, this is getting really weird and awkward. It's like, what are, you, what are you doing? How's it going? It's fine. Just checking my email. For like 30 minutes. Then he closes his computer and he starts to tell me what he wants me to do, some decisions he wants me to make in the church. He's like, I don't want to be the pastor, but I have some advice for you, and he demands that we make some policy changes about some doctrinal issues in the church. And when I said no, he Pretty quickly left now what is that that's that's the jezebel thing so i want to sit in your office i want your i want to influence you so you will influence the church but i'd want to be behind the scenes and unseen i don't want the responsibility and the accountability that comes from actually having the position this is jezebel she wants she doesn't want to be king she wants to use the king and his authority and manipulate him so this is a really terrible dynamic you got this weak, like sniveling, shifty-eyed Ahab who's got all this enormous power and authority but doesn't know how to use it and refuses to use it. And then his wife, who is a Baal worshiper, leading the entire nation into worship of Baal to replace worship of Yahweh. And she's like a puppeteer behind Ahab using him all along. It would be bad to live... In Israel under this kind of leadership, wouldn't it? So the pinnacle of their wickedness we'll see this morning in this story. 1 Kings 21, the first four verses. It says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now you think it would be good to live next door to the king, but in his case, not so much. Look what happens. Verse 2, And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, pouting, Because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat food. (laughs) This is your king. Your mighty, pouty king. He offers Naboth a good deal. Reasonable offer. Look, I can... I'll buy it from you, or I'll give you another vineyard somewhere else that's just as good. Can I ha- and he, he, he apparently he really wants to grow some veggies. He wants to grow some vegetables. And he asks the guy, and he just says no, and his reason is also legitimate. This land was given to me as an inheritance from my father's. It's important to me beyond just the value as it has as a vineyard. It's important to me because it's an inheritance. I'm not going to give it to you. And Naboth, the king, goes home, crawls in his bed, whines and pouts, turns his back to the room, and refuses to eat. It's <laughs> Unreal. But this shows you Ahab's character, doesn't it? He is so concerned about the little garden next door, sitting in his palace. Certainly you can grow a garden somewhere else. That's not important to him. Jezebel comes in, and she sees him pouting. She loathes Ahab's weakness. You can see it in the way she talks to him. She hates him. She despises him. But she also wants to use his power, so she manipulates and patronizes him and tells him that she'll take care of it. Sort of strokes his forehead... Oh, sweetheart, you're the king. Don't you know you're the king? Tell you what, sweetie. You lay here. You feel better. I'll take care of it. When Jezebel takes care of something, (laughs) it's going to be ugly. She sounds caring, but she is not at all. She sounds compassionate. She uses compassionate words. You ever known somebody like this? They use compassionate words, but in their heart, they hate you. They despise your weakness. She's a wicked manipulator. So, Jezebel writes letters. Here's what she does about it she writes letters to the elders and leaders of Naboth's town, to the, the people with all the authority in her, in his town, using the letterhead of the king, Ahab. She goes in his office, uses his internet to check her email. Right, She goes in, uses his letterhead, and writes on his behalf as though she is King Ahab to all of these elders and leaders in Naboth's town. And she calls for a fast in that town, which is ended by a feast traditionally because she wants to get everybody together in the town at one table. And so she gets they have this feast, and she arranges to have Naboth seated at the place of honor at the head of the table where everyone can see him. And has two liars, she hires two liars to sit on either side of them at the end of the table. And they both are hired to accuse Naboth of cursing God and cursing the king. Both punishable by death. She comes up with two charges punishable by death because she wants to make sure he doesn't survive the day. So he, she's, they have two witnesses which is required by law two witnesses of him cursing God and cursing the king, and they accuse him in front of everyone. Everyone sees it, everyone witnesses it. They uh, judge him to be guilty, and the penalty is death. They take him outside of the town, and they stone him to death and execute him right then. Quick and easy. And Jezebel doesn't even have to be there. She is, think about this, she is unseen in this entire scenario. You only know this because the author tells you what happened. But She doesn't go and accuse him. She doesn't write in her own name, in her own hand, on her own letterhead. She writes, she pretends to be Ahab, and just stays behind and sits in the palace and waits for word that he has been executed. It's a mock trial after which Naboth is executed. So look at what happens next here in verse uh, chapter 21, verses 15 and 16. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, still laying in his bed apparently, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of, the Nab- of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession possession of it. As soon as Ahab heard that he was dead. Notice that Ahab asks no questions but simply takes the land immediately with no concern whatsoever for Naboth and his family. Naboth is still cold in the ground. He basically steps across his grave past the grieving family and takes what he wanted and asks no questions. How did this happen, Jezebel? What what did you do? How'd you handle it? How'd you pull this off? What great news? Tell me more. He says, Ask no questions, tell me no lies. He, what he wants more than anything is that puny little vineyard next door to grow his garden of vegetables. Our Ahab is essentially. A selfish child covetousness is only satisfied with the destruction of another person. It's one of the things we need to recognize when we feel covetous of someone else we look at what someone else has and we feel jealous is that the thing under what that jealousy wants in your heart is not just to have that thing it wants to have that person it wants that person to not have that thing you don't just want another car just like their car You want them to not have that car and you to have it. Why do we get so weirded out when someone else wears the same dress? Why does it bother anybody? I don't want her to have that dress. I want to have that dress. Covetousness has murder in it. All mixed in. Ahab was not going to be happy just having any vineyard anywhere, even if it's better than Naboth. What he wanted was he wanted that one, and he did not want Naboth to have it. It's silly for Ahab to covet anything, isn't it? It's just silly. He's the king. He's living in a palace. He can have anyone make a vineyard anywhere. He can get vegetables anywhere. He can go take other people's vegetables if he wants. People will give him their vegetables because he's the king. It's silly. But Naboth's death, we see the true nature of a heart overtaken with covetousness. I'm sure Ahab lied himself saying something like, I just really need a vegetable garden and stupid Naboth isn't being very generous towards his king. I'm a victim here. I'm not being well respected. I don't like how that guy makes me feel. Look at him over there flaunting his vineyard, strutting around the place like he's the king of his own castle. I'm the king. Can't you see him lying to himself and soothing himself? This isn't just about vegetables. He's not just a really big into squash or corn or whatever. It's about failing to acknowledge God as your source, and as a result, becoming ungrateful for what you have while you peer over the wall of your life at your neighbor's blessing. The grass really does always seem greener on the other side, doesn't it? It's a really gross thing about human nature. You can be the most blessed person on the block, but you're still jealous of someone else. All of us, including Jezebel, see how silly this is for a king that has everything to be jealous of a poor farmer. It's ridiculous. But how silly would it be for a child of a king to covet something he or she doesn't have? You and I are children of a king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the king over every other king who has given you a seat at his table. How silly is it for us to ever be jealous of anyone else, to ever think that you don't have a good place or a good spot or have enough? It's silly. We do this all the time. We lose perspective on what God has given us. And our gratitude goes out the window. And suddenly we look over the wall, over the fence, across the yard, at the neighbor or at the friend or the coworker, and we begin to covet what they have. For example, you pray for strong children and get what you want, Draw strong children and then complain to God about how they don't do what you say the way you want them to. God says, sure, I'll give you strong, strong-willed children because strong-willed children grow up to be pretty great adults, but they're hard to raise. <laughs> My father is agreeing with that too heartily. <laughs> I was hoping he'd look at me like he didn't know what I was talking about. Or you pray for a new job and then you get that new job and then complain about the new job as much as the old one. Or you pray for a godly spouse and then complain about the process God uses to make them godly. It's a terrible thing about lesson from the Egyptians that Dawn brought out. Which is they pray for deliverance and God the way God brings deliverance is he brings plagues on the Egyptians. The problem is they live there too. The Israelites live in Egypt. So they got to deal with the frogs and the crickets and the blood and the water and all that, along with everybody else. It's not for them, but they got to live there. That's what it's like being married to somebody that you prayed for. <coughs> God gotta, the way God makes them holy involves you and your house. I thought I would know anything about that, but Heather is an expert. (laughs) The loss of gratitude leads to covetousness. So you become jealous of other people's family life that seems so serene because their kids seem so obedient. You covet other people's jobs or income or free time because their job pays more or is less demanding. Must be nice. That's my favorite Southern covetousness statement must be nice must be nice to be able to afford that must be nice to have so much time off must be nice bless their heart that's the other good one you covet another person's spouse because they seem more godly than yours which leads to adultery by the way it's the classic form of Naboth's vineyard is another man's wife Guys, if you ever hear a woman that's not your wife say to you, she just doesn't appreciate you like I do, I'd listen to you. I'd make you that sandwich in the middle of the night. I'd be here for you. Or a man says to a woman he's not married to and says, well, I think you look really pretty in that dress. I don't know what his problem is. Sounds so compassionate, doesn't it? Sounds so encouraging. But it is one of the most evil, wicked words you have ever heard from another person. Because what it does is it tries to crack open your heart and open it to covetousness, to jealousy. To say, you know, you're right. I really should have that vineyard. It's not fair that I don't have it. It should be mine. It's not fair that you said no. I don't want to be married to this person anymore. I want this other one. And jealousy opens the door to adultery in a second. That's how it happens. Well, it's one of the ways it happens. So It all begins with a lack of gratitude and a lack of submission to God as the source. God is my source, and what he gives me is what I need. If I don't have it, I don't need it right now. See, that's a different attitude than Naboth. He said, I don't have it, and I need it, and I want it, and it's not fair, I don't have it. And I'm going to pout until someone goes and gets it for me. There's always somebody waiting in the wings to go retrieve it for you. There's always a Jezebel in your ear, literally or spiritually, to tell you how much God is holding out on you and how she can get what you, you what you want if you just do things her way. Remember back to Adam and Eve, Eve in the garden. What did Satan first say to her? God's holding out on you. God is not a good source of life for you. He has not blessed you the way you should be blessed. And if you'll just do what I say and listen to me for a second, do things my way, you will have what you want. And she says, why, of course, serpent. You must be right. I'll have some of that apple, please. I really wanted that apple. It's not fair that God wouldn't let me have the apple. Forgetting the fact that every other fruit in that garden was hers whenever she wanted it. so i'm sorry for making you identify with ahab cuz it's not it doesn't go well for him okay <laughs> but that unfortunately maybe i'm the only one who identifies with him but i do look at chapter 21 verse 21 it says behold this is elijah who comes he enters back into the story also and he you know as he does finds a way to get to ahab and he rebukes him and curses him, prophetically. He says this, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. Imagine hearing that from God. That's not a prophetic word I want to hear. I want to hear encouraging words. He says, I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bonder free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel, Naboth's hometown. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now that was a terrible insult, the whole dog thing, because we love dogs. Dogs are like better than humans, apparently. We spend more money on our dogs than our own health care. But in this time and culture, dogs were the lowest of the low, the dirtiest of the dirtiest, the grossest of the grossest. The very idea of you dying and then being eaten up by a dog was just like the worst. And this is what God says through Elijah to Ahab and Jezebel. Then what's interesting is Ahab has a sort of repentance before God. But he doesn't try to make anything right. He doesn't like say, hey, I'll give Nabah's vineyard back to his family as, you know, so they can at least have the inheritance from his father's. No, he doesn't do any of that. He just feels really bad. But God in his mercy delays the judgment for a season, but it's still coming. He says, all right, Ahab, I'll give you a chance. You're saying you repent. You're saying you're sorry. I'll delay it, and we'll see how it goes. It doesn't go well. His Ahab, his repentance lasts seems like just for a few minutes or a few days. So following these events, there were three years of peace when Ben-Hadad, you remember him, our old enemy in Syria, left Israel and Judah alone for three years. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, came down to see Ahab and Israel. Remember the division, Judah and Israel? That becomes even more important in Second Kings. He's tired of Syria occupying the region of Ramoth-Gilead, which is used, to, used, used to be held by Judah, now is occupied by Syria, and he wants it back. And so he wants to join forces with Ahab to take it back. Ahab agrees, again, pledging that himself and all he has belongs to Jehoshaphat, which really gets on my nerves. Because he's supposed to be that way towards God, and he never is. But anybody that walks in the door and says, hey, I need something from me, he says, all I have belongs to you. And bows the knee. He does the same thing with Jehoshaphat. And there's this amazing story of Ahab has this band of yes-man prophets that he's gathered around himself as one does when they're weak and sniveling. Because you gather people around you that will tell you that God approves of everything you do. So he gathers this group of yes-man prophets. So there's one obnoxiously wonderfully obnoxious prophet named Micaiah who is frustratingly dedicated to only saying what God says. And there's this one these fun exchanges back you know, Ahab is really annoyed by him. Why do you always say what God says? It's really annoying and he pouts and he whines and he complains about Micaiah and Micaiah sorta of seems to shrug his shoulders and just say, Yeah kind of my thing i'm a prophet I that's what i do i just say what god says i'm just going to do that so jehoshaphat is a little bit more righteous than ahab because he wants to know what god says about attacking syria to get their land back okay that's a positive direction for judah okay judah's generally until the end and they're all just sacrificing their own children but but until we get there Judah's a little more righteous. They just want, want to know what God says. So he says to Ahab, let's get your prophets together and have them tell us what God says about attacking Syria to get our land back. And he does, and of course the yes-man prophets come together, and they all say, yes, God shall bless it. And they've got all this, like one guy makes a set of horns out of iron. He has visual aids and his prophecy. And they're all, they're all just saying what they know he wants to hear, okay? It is clear as a bell that's what they're doing, but it's very dramatic. Then Micaiah is called because Jehoshaphat says, hey, you know, isn't there, he doesn't trust it. You know, when everybody in the room says, yes, you're so right, old king, yeah, maybe you don't trust it. So he says, isn't there another prophet somewhere that could weigh in on this? And they have, well, there's this guy named Micaiah, but you know, really, he's kind of obnoxious. He always telling being contrary. He's got a bad attitude. Let's not. He says, no, I want to hear from him. So they call Micaiah. Micaiah comes in. And first he's sarcastic, which I appreciate. He's kind of over it all. But then he prophesies an astounding word to the assembly, including Ahab and Jehoshaphat. This is what he says, chapter 22, verse 17 to 23. And he said, I saw all Israel... Scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each, let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? As though that's the goal. It's not to hear from God, but to hear him prophesy good. Verse 19, and Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Now, if you're Ahab at this point, you'd think you'd have a modicum of wisdom. And you would shut it down. You would just shut it down. We're not going. We're not. All you false prophets are fired. I am not going to Ramoth Gilead under any circumstances. That is not, as we sure are, as we know, is not what Ahab does. Instead, Micaiah gets punched in the face, thrown in prison for his faithfulness to God. I don't think we hear from Micaiah again. No wonder he's a little hesitant to show up and prophesy at the prophecy meeting. He just gets beaten up and thrown in prison for being the only one to prophesy the truth, which is God had allowed a demon to entice Ahab to his ultimate death. So Ahab and Jehoshaphat decide to make war on Syria despite the warnings. Ahab goes, because, you know, if you're Jehoshaphat, you're like, hey, I don't care. It's not my skin in the game. If anybody dies here, it's going to be Ahab. It's on you, buddy. Ahab goes into battle disguised like Jehoshaphat as though that can somehow fool God. I love this. It's comedic to me. He dresses up in a disguise to look exactly like Jehoshaphat. And he says, it'll be fine. God won't see me, right? I'll just disappear. And everyone will think I'm someone else. It'll be fine. What a dummy. Again, sorry I'm making you identify with Ahab, but I sure do. You ever try this sort of thing on God? I know this is wrong, but it'll be fine. I'll wear sunglasses. I'll disguise myself. I'll just be sneaky, whatever it is. It'll be fine. Now, this might have worked. It actually was a smart plan if God wasn't involved, right? Because Ben-Hadad had instructed unknowingly to them, had instructed his army just to find Ahab and kill him and not bother with anyone else. He said, don't fight with these weak weak soldiers that come out to fight you. Find Ahab and kill him, and the battle will be solved. So he is hunting Ahab, and they can't find him because Ahab is in disguise. They actually go to they find Jehoshaphat, and they say, that must be Ahab, the real Jehoshaphat. And then Jehoshaphat cries out, and they realize it's not Ahab. Look at how Ahab dies, 34 to 38. But a certain man, just any just a nameless, anonymous soldier, drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Foom! <laughs> Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot, and about sunset a cry went out through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country, just as Micaiah had prophesied. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. There's your king, ladies and gentlemen. So not only is this a story, I think, about covetousness and the murder that's hidden within it, a murderous intent that's hidden within it, but it's also about how God is a God of justice. No one knew what Jezebel had done to Naboth and his family. Apparently, Elijah just heard about it when God spoke to him and confronted him. In his mercy, he may delay justice for a time, but he never lets things go, ever. He sees it all, he knows it all, and he will rectify All of it. Every wrong will be made right. Every debt of injustice will be paid. Every injustice done against man or against God will be meted out on the head of the perpetrator or it will land on the head of Christ. But those debts will not go into eternity unsatisfied. Not one single injustice, even the ones hidden that nobody knows about, God knows about. He knows who did them and how they did them. And he will settle every single score. So there are two groups this touches on. One is those who are being tempted with covetousness, and two, those who are waiting on justice from God. You need to understand, God, if you were done wrong, God knows it, and he will settle it. Your job is to forgive, which is essentially letting it go, saying my right to justice is gone It's all in the hands of God. He only has the right to bring justice. And let me tell you, He will. You will see every debt paid. If you're being tempted by covetousness, it's highly likely that you will find underneath that in your heart a failure to acknowledge God as your source and give thanks to Him for all He's given you. You can't fight against covetousness itself. What you can do is destroy it by being grateful and thanking God for what you have. It destroys it. If you feel bad about your car, go clean it and wash it and thank God for it. If you feel bad about your house, you know, patch that hole in the wall. If you're jealous of your friend's wife, go love your wife better. Thank God for her. The the antidote to it is being grateful to God for what he's given you and what he's blessed you with. If you're awaiting justice from God, then simp- you simply have to wait a little longer. It's not, I know it doesn't feel like good news. <laughs> a Christian waiting is about patient hope. It's about letting go of your right to justice and giving that over to God, trusting him to settle the score in his time, in his way and remembering that when even though you have to let it go, God will not let it go. And so there's trust in him that he will not let those things go. But for now, we wait, right? We see things in the world that are messed up and unjust. Like, why is it that I live in a place where if an earthquake hit us, it would be tragic, but there would be like a fireman and a policeman and several neighbors and Samaritan's Purse and FEMA, and everybody else in my neighborhood in 24 hours, giving me water, and hot meal, and a hot shower, and a place to sleep. Why is it that that's true of me, and it's not true of someone else who seems to be more into Jesus than I am? Like, that doesn't, that's an injustice by itself. God will settle that. Because in his economy, it makes sense. Now's not the time to settle it. I don't know why it is that I was born into a happy, healthy family, and other people weren't. Doesn't seem fair. But you can't spend all your time sitting there looking at the, uh, your neighbor's vineyard going, it should be mine, it's not fair, it's not mine. That leads you to a very, very dark place. What you have to do is thank God for what you got. So for now, we wait and we trust that even though you must learn to let things go, God does not ever let them go. And if you are one who perpetrates injustice, woe be unto you. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to lead one of my little ones astray. God sees everything. So I'd like to pray for us if you're in one of those two categories tempted by ingratitude and jealousy or you're waiting in some kind of stuck place waiting on justice from God that God will give you the patience to trust Him. So why don't we stand up together and pray for that. God, thank you for the Negative example of Ahab and Jezebel, and God, how that reveals similar weaknesses in us. God, help us to be people that bow the knee to you and submit to you as our source of everything. God, you are our source of life, our source of blessing, our source of provision our source of justice. God, you are our source of courage and faith and hope and everything. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to rid us of ingratitude. And that you would fill us with thankfulness this morning. That you would remind us of all the miracles you've done in our lives, all the blessings you've given us, all the times you have rescued us from ourselves and rescued us from others. God, the way you have brought us from death to life. God, we're so grateful. Holy Spirit, I ask you that our minds right now would be filled with list upon list upon list of blessings you've provided us with. Not because we deserve it or have earned it, but because you're good and you're faithful. And Lord, I pray from that position of gratitude and thankfulness that we will be able to lay our right to justice at your feet. And say to you, I'll, I'll wait I'll wait as long as you want to wait. God, help us not to recoil at the thought that that injustice, that debt might be put on the head of Christ because the one who did the injustice to us met you and gave himself to you. And Part of the debt that was put on the cross was the debt that was owed to us. Help us to see the cross in the middle of the pain. God, I pray that you would give those who have suffered tremendous injustice and trauma, God, give them the ability to look at you sitting in the middle of that pain and say, I trust you with this. You're good to me. I trust you with this. God, we want to be people that acknowledge you, not only in the easy places, but in the hard places too. God, I also pray that you would protect the marriages here. Just feel compelled by the Spirit if there's any male or female Jezebels lurking in the shadows of our life, God, would you destroy them? God, that that wickedness would be eliminated from our life and every life of every married couple in this room. That lie... It comes through ingratitude and covetousness would be destroyed and that voice would be shut we pray this in the name of jesus amen